Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, last week, man, that was the hanger, wasn't it? All right, did any of you do your homework? Oh, you did, so y'all are real smart. Oh, good. Uh... Because the section we ended with, let me just read to you and be reminded, remember there were two major statements that Jesus made. And by the way, this is his last discourse, so I don't want to forget this. I don't want to forget the structure. Do you remember the structure of John? Okay, you're like, I think. Uh, What is his mission statement? John 20, 30 through 31, basically. It's like I could have written all kinds of things. Um, but I've chosen these things so that you would know, you would believe, you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you would have life. It is an evangelical gospel. He wrote it with a mission statement in mind. I have chosen everything. I have laid this out for one purpose and one purpose only, that you would believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you would have life. And then in chapter one, he lays out all the themes, Um, all of them. Uh, I made a theme card. Hopefully you made a theme card. And we keep seeing those themes running through the book of John. Then he puts them into portraits. And do you remember what I said back in the day when I taught you about portraits? And I said how beautiful they are because you can see something in a portrait, and to someone who has no expertise or any information, they can still see the basic story if they look at this, this painting. Um, I think I used the example of my friend, uh, call her Catholic Colleen, because I have like three or four Colleens in my life, and she's the Catholic one. And the first time we ever met, she heard me speak at an Aspire, and I walked out, and she looked at me, and she goes, is everything you just said true? And I said, yes. She goes, I've never heard any of that before. And it started a friendship. And now I get to speak into her life and she loves on me. And not too long ago, she's the one who said, hey, Shannon, can you come down to Central Phoenix? We're gonna go to the Sistine Chapel exhibit and I want you to go walk me through all of Michelangelo's portraits or paintings and I want you to teach me all of the story walking through. She said, because I don't know all the stories. And so we literally walked through basically, you know, the ceiling. We walked through each one, and I literally taught her the entire Old Testament narrative walking through the paintings. And that's my point. She could walk up to a painting, and she could know basically the simplicity of the story. But if you have expertise or you have more knowledge, I could say, do you see that in that person's hand? Do you see that right down in the background? That means something too. And teach the depth. And this is, what, this is why John is such a beautiful masterpiece is because when someone first comes to know Jesus, most of the time, what book do we tell them to read first? John. Why? Because there's all kinds of simplicity in it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would have life. Um, But yet, if you have great uh, knowledge or you have especially a lot of Old Testament knowledge, every time you look at the 
the paintings or the portraits he's putting in front of you, you see more and you see more and you see more. And John calls you back over and over to experience it in a deeper way. He sets it up that way with that mission statement. So the first four, do you remember, are bookend by the region of Cana. And what were the first four? They were Jewish institutions. And what were they? What was the first one? The wedding. And the second, the temple. There was a temple incident, do you remember? Where we find out that, hey, you knock this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. What is he saying? I'm the temple. Well, wasn't that a theme in chapter one? He tabernacled among us and we saw the glory. We saw the glory of God in him as the only begotten of the Father. And so there was the wedding, the temple. What else? The rabbi, okay, the conversation with the rabbi. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born of water and spirit. And we went back to Ezekiel and we looked at really what does that mean to be born from above? And then what was the fourth one? The well, right, the well. And so he took four uh, Jewish institutions and he shows basically brokenness and how he is the fulfillment of these things, okay? Book ended by Cana. The next four are bookended by what? Remember? Solomon's portico. It's, it's, master, it's a masterpiece how he put this thing together. And that is basically, uh, we're talking about holidays or feasts, um, those kinds of things. And what were they? The first was the Sabbath. It was a whole issue of working on the Sabbath. Well, my father is working, so therefore I am working on the Sabbath. What was the second one? Passover. I am the bread of life. Do you remember? And then what was the third? Feast of Tabernacles, and that was a doozy. We stayed there for quite some time, didn't we? Right? He says, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And when he does, out of his belly flows rivers of living water. So I am living water. I am the rock that was struck, that provided the water. And then he says, what else? I am the light of the world. And all this is symbolically being remembered through the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then he goes into the, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. And all of that takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. But now in our scene is the last one. And what was it? The Feast of Hanukkah, right? Or the uh, Feast of Lights, uh, the Feast of Dedication, and I taught you all the history about that last week with um, Antiochus Epiphanes and Judas Maccabeus and the whole thing, and they basically consecrated or purified the temple when they gained their independence, and Jesus is walking in Solomon's portico, and he's during this time, and the Jews encircle him and begin to push. When are you just gonna speak plainly to us? Remember, this is the most patriotic um, holiday and they're looking, right? The world is looking or the, the nation of Israel is looking for a leader like Judas Maccabeus to gain freedom. And they said, when are you gonna speak plainly? Quit messing around, quit annoying us, right? And he's like, speak plainly. I have spoken plainly, and last week we went through all the different things that he has said. And what does he finally come to the conclusion? The, the 
problem is not clarity. The problem is a lack of belief. Why? You're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would hear my voice. And then he goes and he makes them. This is the last discourse because things are about to change. Because chapter one theme, four institutions, four holidays, and then there is going to be the sixth sign I call the seventh sign, the resurrection. It's predicted in the prophetic sign of the temple, but is going to be Lazarus and everything is going to change. And so we're halfway through. I mean, what are we in chapter 11? And there's 21 chapters in John. And the second half is about the passion. I mean, and that's the point. Uh, the book is written for the gospel, for, for what happened. And so we're about to have this transition. But he makes, so this is his last discourse, and he makes two huge statements in this section. One is in verse 30, where he says, um, and right before that, remember, is the beauty of the security of the saints. We won't go back over that. But he says, I and the Father are one. He puts himself in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And here he says, I and the Father are one. Huge statement. And the other one is in verse 38, where he says, I can't see. Oh, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Those are two huge statements. And so in the middle of that, remember last week I said, okay, so what is his argument for those statements? And this is what he says. Um, because remember, they're about to stone him. And he says, why are you stoning me for what good work? And what do they say? Well, we're not stoning you for any good work. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you are a man who is making himself to be God. Okay, so keep that in your mind because that's why they're stoning him and he's gonna make an argument. So Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated? And do you remember that's a play on words because what festival are we in? Hanukkah, uh, that he is the consecrated, the purified temple, the sent one, all of that is there and, and sent into the world. You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then you do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Okay, so last week we looked at what psalm was he quoting? Psalm 82, let's go there. Now let's do some of your homework together. <laughs> I went to a party on Friday night. And, uh, one of the gals from Tuesday Night Bible Study was there. It was hilarious. She really wanted to sit down and talk about the homework. I said, girl, get a cookie. We'll talk about this next week. <laughs> She's like, this is an opportunity. I have Shannon one-on-one, -on -one, and we're going to talk about the sons of God. I said, nope, we're going to eat cookies. Oh, uh, Psalm 82. <laughs> God, God has taken his place in the divine council. 
In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Okay, so this is the part he quoted. I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The first thing we pointed out is that the word Elohim is used uh, to describe, in verse one, God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohims, he holds judgment. That word Elohim is, is basically just a word right, used for God, and you can tell the context, you can tell about the God through the context. So in this context, we know that there is one singular God who is above all others, who is the judge of this divine council, and then what else is there? Just talk to me in everyday English, don't worry about your theology. What else is there? There are also multiple or lesser in this uh, gods, is, is how it is written. And so you're like, wait a minute, who are these lesser gods? And I told you that, you know, there's, there's different thoughts on this. Um, almost every commentary you will read will tell you that they are men, um, that the phrase gods here is actually talking about men, almost every commentary you read. Uh, and they will basically say, and they tie it to the fact that in John 10, when he quotes this, he says, um, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. So they look at that part and they think, okay, well, who did the word of God come to? And they think, oh, it is the nation of Israel. And then they talk about or they equate the fact that these little gods are actually the judges or the elders of Israel. And they send us back to Exodus 18. So go ahead and look at that. Let's do some Bible study together today. Exodus 18. So when you read different commentaries, they'll kind of refer to this story. What's the title of your 18? Jethro's, mine says Jethro's advice. Okay, what was the situation? Well, they had already received the law. Moses had received the law. Now they are, uh, they, they've made their exit out of um, Egypt. They've received the law. Now they are established, and Moses is trying to lead these people in all things. So he is the judge, and he is overwhelmed. Can you imagine that many people? Two million people camped around by tribe, and they're all coming to you for disputes, and it is your responsibility to lead them um, into the law, all right? And Jethro looks at him and says, what? You can't do this. This is too much. Don't you ever have people in your life that go, Shannon, say no. You can't do this. This, is, this isn't your calling. These are extra little things. And these little things are wearing you out to do the big thing that you're called to do. Don't y'all have bossy friends in your life like I do in mine? Jethro is saying that, and so in, in the 
process, then uh, Moses sets up elders or judges over the people. And very often, okay, they can be referred to, um, they will say that the judges were like God in the sense that they were judging over the people. But here's the problem I have with it. Psalm 82 never refers to anything about Sinai or the Exodus or anything of, of the sort. There's no connection there. And when you read Exodus 18, they are never referred to as the sons of God or any phrase that would make us think, oh, Psalm 82, there's nothing. And so hermeneutically, there there's a huge stretch for me. There's a big jump that we're using the phrase, uh, the ones who received the law to just send us back to this event and that that's what it's talking about. So some people will say, okay, well, it's not really the judges or the elders of Israel. It's Israel in general. It's the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is referred to as the firstborn, God's firstborn. And that there was this idea that because they were married to God or they entered into a covenant with God, they were like him. But then what happened is when they uh, did the golden calf, uh, then all that went awry. And so you can read about all this in commentaries, but many will say that in Psalm 82, I'm just giving you the highlights, in Psalm 82, that it's referring to men. But yet there's another idea. And the fact with that is that almost every time you see, I'm not gonna say almost every time, I believe it's every time. Every time you see the phrase, the, son of, the sons of God, it is always talking about angels or the divine. It is. And so I think sometimes we avoid the portions of scripture that we don't understand um, and so, and anytime you see this, especially when you see little Elohims, uh, you think, oh no, we're not going to step into this issue and mess up this whole monotheistic one God situation. But let me tell you what I believe it's really talking about. So if, it, if and do you realize that if it's man, why the contrast? Look at in Psalm 82, look at where it says in verse 7 or six and seven, I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Why the contrast? I said, you are little gods, you are like gods, but yet because you did not judge correctly, you will die as mere men. And so there is a contrast there. Psalm 89 did you, did you look up that? Did you see some things in that? Okay, let's look at that a little bit. The part that I think uh, really talks about what we're saying stop, starts in Psalm 89, 5. It says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Okay, that's only seven psalms away 
and it's talking about this divine council, some kind of divine council where he is surrounded by the holy ones or the gods. But yet, what does it say in the context? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared. So there is a difference between these little gods and God, singular, the judge over the council. So let's at least get that straight, okay? Then I gave you, what are some of the other ones I gave you? Uh, how about Isaiah 24, 21? Let's look at that. We don't normally do this together. Do y'all feel like you're in my office? Isaiah 24, 21. Have you ever noticed you don't hear any sermons on these verses? Did you ever grow up hearing any sermons on some of this stuff? No, me neither. Okay, Isaiah 24, 21 says, on that day, so what's it talking about? What's the title of 24? The judgment. So we're talking about the last days, okay? It says, on that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven, where? In heaven, and the kings of the earth on earth. So in this verse, there's a judgment coming and men will be judged, but so will the divine or spiritual beings. They have a judgment coming as well, okay? So, so somehow we have this idea that God has a family of humans, right? that one day a judgment is coming, but yet God also has a family of what? Spirit beings, divine beings, correct? And they have a judgment coming as well. In the family of humans, some chose well, some did not. In the family of spirit beings, or however you want to say it, the divine, the angelic, some chose obedience and some chose disobedience, and judgment is coming. All right, look at uh, oh, 1 Kings 22. <laughs> Did y'all read that? Don't lie to me. Kind of? You're like, uh, Shannon, this is too much. Uh, this, this makes me question more things than it gives me answers for. Yep, it does. Let me be reminded. Ooh. <laughs> okay, 1 Kings 22 uh, Ahab, right? Uh, the nation of Israel is split at this point. You have the northern kingdoms. You have the king, which is Israel. You have the southern, which is Judah. They each have a king, and they're trying to decide to fight together against another. So here's, here's the basic story, starting in verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. 
And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and his left. Do you get a picture of a divine council? And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. You're like, what in the world? Okay, so here's the deal. Ahab's a bad guy, right? And the two kings are trying to decide what to go to battle. Okay, I'm not even gonna get into that story. You can look at the story. But the bottom line is we have a scene here where Micaiah, this prophet, sees the heavenlies and what he sees is a divine council. And somehow in that divine council, God is judge, but he's allowing other spirits to come forward and to be a part of his plan. They have jobs, they have authority. And the one says, and, and Ahab is an enemy of God. And the one says, I know I have an idea. I will entice him to go because he's bad and there's a judgment is coming towards Ahab. They're trying to figure out how the best way to do it. And he says, I will put a lying tongue in his prophets. He will be deceived and he will go and he will be destroyed. And you're like, wait a minute. Can they put a lying tongue in a prophet? Like they're gonna deceive? Okay, let me ask you this. I'm just gonna throw this out there. Do you remember when the Israelites would fight against the enemy of God? And very often, uh, God would have them create a ruse and the enemy would fall for it. And then they would be surrounded and then they would conquer and he would hand them over. He says, no, I'm gonna give them over to your hand because I'm gonna put them into a confusion. Go act like this, they'll fall for it, and you will beat them. Do you remember different things in the Old Testament like that? Remember, this is an enemy of God and a judgment. And so the bottom line here is this. There is a counsel. God has given divine beings in this situation authority to participate with him in his plan. That's what we're seeing. That's, all, that's the point I wanna make out of 1 Kings 22. And people are like, wait a minute. God doesn't need spiritual beings. To he don't need you. God allows us to participate in his plan, to be a part of his plan of the gospel, of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. He has also spiritual beings that are in his counsel that he has given jobs and different authorities to, and we see it scattered throughout the scripture. I just wanted to show you that. Look at Daniel 4, 17. This is a lot of work, you're thinking, for the statement I'm gonna make in the end. <laughs> but isn't it fun? Some of you are like, no, I'm not a nerd. It's not fun, I think it is. Daniel 4, look at, uh, we're gonna read 13 and then we're gonna read 17 
Yeah, 17. So 13 says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. In verse 17, it says, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So you have these watchers and you have these holy ones that come down with the decrees coming from the most high. So once again, we have this idea of this divine council, these authorities, these spiritual beings, these divine that are a part of God's divine world and plan and um, they have jobs, but are they God? By context, you can tell there is a singular Elohim above all who is the judge, and they say it themselves that he is. There is no one like him. He sets above the council. And so I want you to keep that in mind. Look at Daniel 7, 9 through 10. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. I don't think there's anyone else like him. What do you think? A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. This idea of this divine council Job 1.6, let's look at that. You're like, which way do I go? We need to do some Bible drills. Did y'all ever do those? <laughs> Young people now are like, what in the world is a Bible drill? I'm like, well, if you went to Sunday school, y'all still doing? Good for you. Uh, Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Where did I tell you that always is, that phrase? The divine, angelic, okay, spirit beings. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came up among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, and we definitely don't need to get into that today. All right, but here's my point. In this whole story, whether you believe it historic or parable, what is the idea? That there is a divine world, a divine council of hierarchy, of spirit beings who come to God. He is the ultimate, but they come. They're a part of his plan, and they have authority. Uh, last one, Deuteronomy 32. I also told you to read last week, um, Genesis 6, we actually talked about that when I taught Genesis, right? And the sons of God married the daughters of men, and the Nephilim were on the earth in that day. And then I think I sent you to Jude 1.6, talking about how there are divine beings who stepped outside of their authority, and because of that, they were bound, uh, not allowed to roam the earth into the day of judgment. So don't forget those two. But then, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did that happen? Tower of Babel, 
right? Remember, it was the greatest revolt in all of history. They united against God, and they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do what you ask. We're not going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to stay in one place. We've got this, and we're going to have a society, and you're out. Um, And they revolted against God, and instead, he said, no, that's not going to happen. I made a promise, and he came down, and he confused their languages. Do you remember that? And the nations were born. And they scattered amongst the nations, and they scattered, basically still in rebellion, but yet God did what? In Genesis 12, the very next chapter, he showed grace or favor. He called who? Abraham. And out of Abraham, he formed his unique nation supernaturally, and through that nation would come a seed, and through that seed, singular, who we know in the New Testament is Christ, We know, right, that all nations would be blessed because the mystery that Paul talked about last week was that both Jew and Gentile would be in Christ Jesus and we become one body. And so we talked about that. And so listen to what this is saying. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the sons of God. But the Lord... But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And so if you study this, it seems as if when those nations were split up, God placed authorities over those nations, but his eye was on one, and that is Jacob. Now in your Bible, some of it will say, instead of the sons of God, you'll have a little number by it. And at the bottom, do you see that some of it will say the sons of Israel? That don't make sense to me. Because he then says in the next verse, but Jacob is my, my inheritance, my nation. Well, Israel is Jacob. And so it is saying the sons of God. So at some point when he split the nations and he sends them out, it seems as if that he put some authorities over the different nations to guide those nations. Somewhere along the way, those authorities based on Psalm 82 did not make wise choices And they became corrupt and did not judge correctly. And because of that, they too will be judged and will die as mere men. But Jacob was my inheritance that I watched. So you have this whole idea. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to go in and teach you all that. I think there's some great uh, teachers on this. I think Heisler is the best. Um, He wrote The Unseen Realm um, and he does some podcasts. I actually think he teaches this on what's called the naked Bible. I know that's kind of crazy. And so you can, if you're interested, you can look up some of that. But here's the point. I want to know which one actually makes the better argument for what Jesus is saying. So let's get back to John 10. That's why we're there. What makes the better argument? So if he has sandwiched this argument between two statements of I and the Father are one, and the Father is in me as I am in the Father. What did the middle part argue? And remember that right before that, they're about to stone him because they say he's a man trying to elevate himself to be God. So if it's human beings, if it's humans who are just able to refer to them as themselves as the son of gods, then his argument would be something like this. Well, I don't know why you're getting so bent out of shape. 
There are other human beings who have claimed to be or have been referred to as sons of God to be like God. So basically, I'm not saying I'm any different from you. We're all part of one big family, so I have no idea why you're trying to stone me. That didn't make a lick of sense to me. But if he is saying that the sons of God and those who were given the word, what word? The word read in Psalm 82. He's speaking to them. He is giving his word, his judgment in Psalm 82, saying, because you judged poorly, you will die as mere men. Let's just look at Psalm 82 for what Psalm 82 says. And if it is God's little God's divine being, could it be that he's saying, no, you don't understand. You think that I am a man trying to elevate myself as God. What I'm telling you is I'm not man, I'm divine. I'm spiritual. I am a spiritual being. Before Abraham was, I am. This is my world. I put on flesh to come to yours. And then he goes, so he is saying, no, there is an Old Testament precedent that God has other family that are divine. You believe this as Jewish people. You believe in sons of God, in the divine council. It's written in your, in your uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible. I mean, you have this whole concept. Um, I wrote, there's an Old Testament precedent that Yahweh is father to non-human beings, the divine spiritual beings who have been given the privilege of being involved in God's plan, sons of God. Divine parentage, some good, some bad, they'll be judged. And he is saying, I'm not like you, I'm like that, divine. But then he goes on and makes it even more. Because then he says, in that last statement, I gotta get back to John 10, so get back there with me. When he says, and if you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the works. So he is saying, even if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe what I've done, because what is the point? No mortal man could ever do what I've done. Open your eyes. Do you understand that? You have seen the miraculous. There is no mortal man that has ever given sight to a man born blind. You're watching the supernatural at work. And he said, so if you don't believe my words, believe your eyes and what you have seen. But then he goes on and he says, it's even more than that because he says, the father is in me and I am in the father. That is huge. I want you to go to Exodus 23. And we're gonna see what he says when he leads them out of Egypt. Let's talk about this whole idea of the Father being in him and him in the Father. Look at Exodus 23, verse 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So this is the Exodus. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. What is the rest? For my name is in him. My name is in him. 
Okay, there is a, a theology about name with the Jewish people, right? The name of God represented who he was. His name actually represented his presence. Do you realize they wouldn't even say the name of the divine? They wouldn't even say it. And so bottom line, their theology is that the name is God. The name is God. And so in other words, he's saying this angel, the angel of the Lord. So somehow God's presence in human form, he's saying you obey him. Why? Because my name is in him. In other words, I am in him. All right? And so basically, who is this that is leading them out? It's Jesus. And do you remember it, uh, when we were talking about the Feast of um, Tabernacles, it says that the presence of the, the angel of the Lord stood on the rock, and they hit the rock, and the water came out. What is he trying to show them? Jesus trying to show them, I have been here all along. The very one that led you out of Egypt, that was there with you all I'm him. I'm him. I am God put on human flesh. You've known me all along. I am the fulfillment of all of that. You're looking at me. And he's trying to explain this to him. Also, look at Deuteronomy 4, 35 through 37. I'm going to tell you right now, my mother, when we're done with this, is going to say, Shannon, print out your notes. I don't even know. I could not even keep up. Am I right? Okay. And here's the thing. It's all right. That's okay. I'm going to give you some really good statements to hang your hat on. But then there are other people out there like, this is the best Bible study she's ever had. I wish she'd sit down at that table more often and take us through. Deuteronomy 4, 35 through 37. It says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your, fa your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own what? Presence by his great power. Wait a minute. It says in, in Deuteronomy that God's own presence led them out of Egypt. In Exodus, it says there was an angel, but what did it say? My name is in him. The name is God. The name is his presence. And so, so what was it? Was it God? Was it an angel? Well, and then look at Judges 2. Judges chapter 2. And I don't know what verse yet, but I'm going to tell you. 2-1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. Okay, so what is it? Was, it? was it an angel? Was it the presence of God? Was it God? What is the answer? Yes. Yes. So do you understand what he's saying to them? He is saying, I am the father or one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. You want to kill me for blaspheming because you think I'm a mere man elevating myself to be God. And I'm telling you, you've got it wrong. 
You actually have an Old Testament precedent that God did not just make human beings. There is the such thing as the divine. There is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual council. There are spiritual beings who are uh, present with the Lord and they are part of God's plan. I am spirit. I am divine. I am eternal. I am that, but I'm more than that. I'm the judge of the council. I am the singular almighty God. I am. Why? Because the Father is in me. His presence, his name is in me, and I am in the Father. I am God. That's his statement. This is the last discourse. All that we have studied all year long of what he is saying, it comes to this. He is saying, no, you don't, you got it all wrong. You think I'm a man trying to be God, and I am telling you that I am almighty God, the judge of the council, that all things bow down and serve me. And I have loved you so much that God put on flesh and became man so that you might be saved because from the very beginning, I've wanted a family and I thought you were worth it. And I was unwilling to remove my image from you and I let you maintain your free will. But yet in my sovereignty, I still had a plan that cost me everything to save you because I wanted you from the beginning. They missed it. I think that argument fits what he says. I don't think he was saying, oh, it's no big deal. I'm, you know, I, you refer to yourselves as the son of, sons of God or the elders of the sons of God, and so we're all the same. No, he's telling them we're not the same at all. I'm divine, and I have put on flesh. Well, I think they know what he's saying because look what they do. Again, they sought to arrest him. For he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What a beautiful construct of this book because it started with John the Baptist at that place where Jesus stepped on the scene and he was baptized, he was presented, he was tested, he came back, and he was proclaimed, and he gained his men, and he began this ministry, and we see these portraits that he has done, and then at the end of this section, what does John the author do? He brings it all the way back, full circle to the beginning, to go back where it all began, why? Because the ministry is complete. And now, we're gonna go in to what changes everything, and that is this sign of Lazarus, um, which I'm really kind of glad I didn't get to because I'm gonna tell you, in this season, this has not been a very fun story uh, for me to look at, but it's gonna bring up all kinds of different questions for us, um, and I'm not even gonna start it. Um, I'm just not. I think it'll be better for me to teach it in January than it is right now. But I, I do know something. Um, through the loss of Zachary, this story means way more. And her words, when she says in this, 
when she says, if you would have been here, um, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Those words mean something so different to me now. Because she basically says, you could have stopped it. And we're going to talk about that. You could have stopped it. And I think she went into the whys and the what ifs. And I'm going to tell you, if you go into that, you may never get out of it. It's a deep, dark hole. But I love the next statement. But even now, I believe. So I can relate to her so much because y'all heard my story. And when I said, you know, I found myself in an agony I could not escape. That's the agony I'm talking about. The what if or why, or it's over, it's final, I can't do anything about it. Why didn't I this? Why didn't I that? Why didn't you, God? How dare you? All of it. But yet I said, but I had a faith I couldn't deny. It was the, oh, in that agony, even now, I believe. And the sorrow of, of watching them, I know how they feel. I still feel like losing a brother isn't like losing a son. That's just my, my issue. But I love the fact that he loved every one of them. And I love the fact that God allowed other people to be, uh, increase their faith by watching Mary and Martha suffer, by watching, uh, and we get to see them comforted. I think this story is just a beautiful story of God's absolute love and sovereignty but there's a lot of pain in that story. And, um, and there's a lot of delay in that story, and I don't like it. And so when we get back, I think it's the perfect transition um, to go into the passion. And uh, I'm also glad that in this story that God knows outcomes. He knows the outcomes and we do not. And so we're going to look at that. And honestly, would it matter if we could see the outcome? I think it's so interesting. He knew his death was approaching. But the future agony that was before him did not affect the present that he was in. I, I don't know. We, I don't think we have the capacity for that. <laughs> you know, if I knew what was coming, if I had known what was coming with Zachary at 26, I don't think I could have. I would have been dreading the coming. I would have been paralyzed in the dread. I wouldn't have enjoyed the present. I wouldn't have been at work in the present. I would have, I don't know what I would have been doing. It just shows you that the trust he has. And um, I'll talk about this next time. I have trust in a lot of areas. Um, and I think uh, she had trust. She had trust. Oh, I know he'll be raised up in the last days. But he goes, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. I trust God for my eternity. I trust God that he has Zachary. I trust that he's God. I trust he is who he says he is. My problem is I don't know what I trust him for today. How about you? I also think it's really interesting, we'll talk about it. Why did he have them roll the stone away? I mean, when he was raised, he rolled his own dang stone away. Why did they have to roll the stone away? We'll talk about that too. So I hope you guys have a marvelous Christmas. Um, today is our last day. 
and um, we will resume on January 11th. Is that a Tuesday, Cindy? Did I get that right? Um, and I'm just going to tell you, we got, we got some things working. So as of right now, I will see you here January 11th. Um, but always check the website if anything changes, all right? That's, that's quite a break, and we're trying to work out some things. Um, my website is itsmaryshannon.com. Itsmaryshannon.com. Um, that's where you can go to find out things, find out addresses. If you ever miss a Tuesday morning, you can go to Tuesday night, and you can go to Wednesday morning. They're all there. Uh, that's where you go if you want to watch the videos of the teaching. They're all there in case you miss one. And stuff is there, I think, from history, from back, that you can watch. Um, it's also a place to give if you want to support the ministry. You give uh, year-end giving, do all that stuff. Go to itsmaryshannon.com. You can also message me there um, on, on the website. Through, just message me right there. So um, is there anything else I need to say? That's it? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for today. I thank you, um, God, for the reminder that uh, you are God and I am not. You are God. And for God to put on flesh and become man so that we could have a relationship, if I can just focus on that and that alone, that the most high, the God of creation, the God that all the divine and humanity will bow their knee before, the good, righteous judge that loves so much that he put on flesh and he humbled himself and he died on the cross to pay the penalty so that we could be reunited in relationship and that you would give me the very nature of God inside as a guarantee of my inheritance. If I can just focus on that through this season, that that is why you came, that no matter what pain comes, I can have such a trust and a peace. Lord, that is why we keep our face in the book. That is why, so we can have the correct perspective. We make this world and this season about so many other things not just bad things, good things, but God, let us focus on the fact that you, the divine, the angelic beings are in awe of what you did for us. They honestly can't believe it. They literally cock their heads to watch the whole scene. They never saw it coming. It was a shock to them, this mystery, the fact that God would become flesh and would die so that all nations could be united in the seed of Abraham, Christ Jesus, and become the body of Christ, the church. And then at this point, there is nothing that can stop the church. The gates of hell have no power against it. It's a force that cannot be stopped because God is the head. He is the cornerstone. And so God, let us have that kind of faith and that kind of perseverance to know that this is temporary and that we have eternity waiting to rejoice with the divine, to rejoice and sing to you. And so, God, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame that he might sit down at the right hand of God the Father. And one day, Lord, we will be worshiping you there. We give you all the glory. Thank you so much um, for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.